Hi, everyone. I'm Adam Johnson. I'm a dad and a rare disease patient advocate, a self-proclaimed dadvocate. From the onset of symptoms and even after an eventual diagnosis, the isolation was almost as excruciating as the symptoms themselves. I felt so alone in so many ways. One of the most prominent ways in particular was as a parent. I knew I couldn't be the only person with a rare disease who was also trying to raise children, but it sure felt like I was. As I've learned, when there's not a specific community you're looking for, one that you need, sometimes you just have to make it yourself. It's taken a while, but I finally decided to do just that. And here we are. This is Parents is Rare, a series brought to you by Energy in Action. Living life as a parent with a rare disease can be quite paradoxical. We laugh and cry, we're vulnerable and scared, we're brave and afraid, all at the same time. Parents is Rare is a community where parents like me, who have a rare disease or chronic illness, can connect, share, support, and be supported. Welcome back to the next episode of the Parents is Rare series of the Energy in Action podcast. Once again, I'm your host, Adam Johnson, and it's great to be with you. Those of you who tuned in last month may recall the intro where I mentioned the 2023 International Metabolic Conference. I was able to attend the event, and it was certainly a pleasure and an honor to be there in Denver, Colorado, with the FAOD, Fatty Acid Oxidation Disorder Community. It's a part of the mitochondrial disease community that I've been a part of, and during my time at the event, I got to share a little bit about the importance of telling and sharing my story with the conference attendees. Those of you that know me and have read my blog or followed me on social or even listened to the podcast know how important that has been in my journey, and I was hoping to share a little bit about that with others. So first of all, kudos to the attendees for making it through my rambling and mostly incoherent presentation on the opening day of the event. Well, as part of that discussion and as an optional part of the conference itself, I encouraged those who were interested to stop by and share part of their story with me. So this is another special episode, just like we did about a year ago, that was recorded live. So over the course of the three days of the events, I had a few takers. It was certainly a pleasure to visit with some of the patients and parents who came by to share their story. Today's episode features the patients in the FAOD community who did stop by. Together, they paint a beautiful picture of what it's been like for them on their journeys. We'll hear from those who have been diagnosed from an early age, to those who have struggled for access to care and testing throughout the diagnostic odyssey, to those who have just recently found their diagnosis. We'll hear of the highs and the lows, the triumph and the heartbreak. And we'll once again see the importance of community while also being reminded that people are the experts in their own lived experience. They need to be listened to and treated with respect, with kindness, with empathy, with compassion. And of course, We'll experience all of the emotions and the feels along the way. My name is Karen Erkman, and I am a carrier of CKD2, and I just found out at the conference that I actually have another diagnosis, and so I'll talk about that in a second. You might recognize my face because Adam and I did a podcast um, that is in the Mito Moments, and I hope that you'll listen to my story because I think it's worthy of listening to, and it was a lot of scary fun. <laughs> So this is my first conference. I actually did a virtual conference a couple years ago and I met Kyra there, but I don't think she remembers that I met her. We were at a round table, the only two of us. I had an opportunity to come here because I decided not to come because it was too expensive. And I had an opportunity to come because one of the uh, members of my support group was had a room that she needed someone else to come to. 
or stay with her if I want, if I wanted to, she said no charge. And I'm like, Oh my, I can't not go. So I got a ticket and I flew out to Denver. The overwhelming thing I felt about all of this was so embraced and appreciated. I was so grateful. It was hard for me to believe that people were texting me when I, they knew I was coming in on, uh, you know, and they, they're sending me messages. I'm at the airport. Where are you? When are you coming? We can't wait to see you. There's someone here waiting for you. I'm like, Oh my gosh, this is, I've never felt this in my life. So how did people help me to get here um, was probably an interesting thing for me because first, Stephanie um, Harry is amazing and she really wanted me to come to the conference. She kept asking me to come and I'm like, oh no, I don't think I can afford to come. And she's like, well, you can apply for a grant. No, no, I don't want to do that. It's just really expensive to come. And um, I ended up uh, having... Diane, who offered me her room, she also offered to pick me up at the airport. So she chauffeured me. She was my roommate. She's a great roommate. Stephanie was here. She's helping me. I met just people everywhere, doctors that were meeting me in the hallways. I learned um, more about my diagnosis than anyone has ever offered to me. I also had a chance to talk to doctors, dietitians. People are sitting, you walk into the room and you sit down at a table and you're like the person, normal person sitting next to you. And then you find out it's the doctor that's going to talk at the, <laughs> at the, the talk. So I really had a wonderful time and I feel so connected to this community. I cry because it was really, really powerful. So I encourage people to come, ask for help, join the support groups, you know, ask questions. There's always somebody willing to answer a question at Mito Action. So it was really wonderful. My name is Sylvia Hood Washington. I'm an epidemiologist. I'm a historian of science, technology, environment, and medicine. And I'm also, and more importantly for this call, I am a patient, I'm an FAOD patient with CPT2 deficiency, a black person of Scandinavian descent with that rare disorder. So I'm really glad you invited me, Milo actually invited me to do the podcast uh, with you today. And we're at the conference, and this is my first conference. And I'm coming here as a 64-year-old African-American woman who has gone her entire life with CPT2 deficiency, undiagnosed and untreated. And coming to the conference is like my own ugly duckling story. So now I'm in my group of swans and in my community. And even being in this space, which is a blessing to me, it's still painful because unlike everyone else at this conference, I'm listening to them. I'm coming here with diagnosed CPT2 through a genetic test, which actually identified four genetic lipid disorders. But unlike the rest of my, my little pod here, I'm still here, diagnosed and untreated. And so how did I get to this space? Still having pain, still not knowing what to eat, still not being medically treated. So this is my story. So how did I get tested? Why did I get tested? I got tested because during the COVID-19 pandemic, I had it three times. And each time, now I understand what I was experiencing. I was experiencing the uh, rhabdomyolysis. The first time I had COVID was brutal. The pain was searing. I couldn't sleep. 
And right afterwards, uh, after weeks of muscle pain and having doctors refuse to let me come in and even be tested for COVID, because they knew I had some kind of metabolic syndrome. They knew for decades before COVID-19 that I was getting ill and I lost the full professorship of physics and chemistry because of these same symptoms and they couldn't figure it out. And I had to be released from a tenured line as a full professor. So everybody knew I had some kind of metabolic problem and my body couldn't function. So they said, we don't want anything about this virus. We don't want you to come into the hospital because you're gonna get ill and we can't treat you even without COVID. So it was an outrage to my body. I developed heart issues. I went from walking 15, 20,000 steps literally a day to not being able to take a step. That was my first bout of COVID. Second bout of COVID was a couple months later, and my husband's like, my gosh, you're this healthy person walking 15,000 steps, and now you can't even walk 10 steps. Second time, COVID hit me. I got COVID pink eye, according to the doctors, because it was traveling along my vagus nerve, and it went into my brain. And so they said, there's no vaccines at this point. We don't know how to treat. Data dated, still unable to walk, now having heart issues. Third time, three months later, I developed COVID. Now I wake up with pain shooting through my right nostril into my eye, complete paralysis. I literally fall to bed screaming, vomiting, diarrhea, sweating, and almost complete paralysis. It took four men to take me out from my second floor because I couldn't move to the hospital. And they said, do you need have heart issues? And I said, no, you not. So coming out of the hospital, I have what looks like Bill palsy on my right side of my face. And then I go to the neurologist, I go to my doctor, the cardiologist that I'm sent to to check to follow up on me heart issue tells me there's nothing wrong with me and that I'm just an active person. My primary care doctor did not send me to a neurologist. So here I am, this highly educated person. I'm a formally trained epidemiologist, a PhD in history of science, technology, environment, and medicine. I'm running my own clinic and I'm experiencing at this point, which I know to be social determinants of health. This is like the worst form of medical non-care that you can imagine. So they run all the tests and no one like I had before when I was a professor and was I had to leave my position, nobody could figure out why I had this muscle pain. The third time around with the COVID, I could not walk for almost three years. So they put me into physical therapy. My neurologist is looking at me in shock. She's running all these tests, MRIs, see if I had stroke, the hospitals wanted to see if I had stroke, why couldn't I walk? It didn't make any sense to them, but nobody said, nobody even thought to think that I had an FAOD. So put in physical therapy, put in speech therapy, sent to a psychiatrist to see if it was psychosomatic and told that it was psychological and that I can't walk because I'm under stress and having anxiety. And so my heart continues to decline. And so that's 2021, 2022. I'm having pain, the pain is searing. So 
the neurologist says to me, I don't know. She says, I, I have to release you. I don't know what's wrong with you. So I look up, you know, muscular dystrophy, look at kind of what kind of neuromuscular issue this could be, because the pain would start at the same time every night. It would be like my legs were being slammed by a sledgehammer. And I would be literally crying in pain. So I ended up seeing the doctor, neurologist at the University of Chicago. And he was like, he's what he tests. He said, this might be a COVID-19, you know, post-COVID-19 disorder, but there's nothing wrong with it, right? Still not given a genetic test, even though I'm having muscle pain and having heart issues. So it keeps declining. And so now I can't breathe. And I'm speaking, I'm teaching students. Oh, I, my eyes are starting to turn red. The pain moves from my leg to my right arm. And then I get constant angina. I was like, guys, this is not psychological. I'm not making this up. This is just getting worse. I went to the emergency room three times in 2022. Each time I saw the same doctor at Northwestern, the ER doctor. And he starts getting angry because he sees me. He says, your heart is declining. You need follow-up care. My primary care doctor at Northwestern and the cardiologist refused to give me cardiac care, refused to see me after the ER doctor told me that I needed to be seen. First in May, then in June, and then by July, I see him a third time. And he says, have they seen you? I said, they're refusing to see me. And they are refusing to refer me out. He brings in a team of physicians and residents. He says, you need to hear her story. He says, I've never seen a patient come in with heart issues and not be provided follow care and not be given even referrals. They fought for me to get referrals outside the hospital. So I'm taking images of my heart and sending them in to telehealth to my husband's insurance that I have. The telehealth doctor tells me, get off this phone, you're about to have a heart attack leave Northwestern and go to University of Chicago. He says, I can't believe what I'm seeing here. That's 2022. So then I switch over to University of Chicago and they are horrified at the story. They look at my medical record and lo and behold, they see that I have been putting in my record that there was a family history that dated back five generations to histories of heart disease and stroke for at least five generations because I'm also the family genealogy, genealogist, and I do genetic genealogy, like roots, you know, like the real estates. Never did I think this would play a part in my life right now. So then they do the story, they look at me, and they said, you have not been treated for 15 years for high cholesterol. And I said, I've told them this, I've always put that down. So then they do the tests, and they find out that I have one genetic lipid disorder called lipoprotein with away. The family history showed that I had a family history of heart disease, familial hypercholesterolemia, FH. So then they gave me to the lipid cardiologist. And that brings me back to the beginning of the story. He says, we know you have lipoprotein with away. Will you agree to do the genetic tests for it? And I said, yes. The cardiologist that I get at the University of Chicago, she says, oh, there's nothing wrong with you, Sylvia. We've done all the traditional tests and you passed them, but they didn't do the angiogram. So do the genetic testing at the same time, I switched cardiologists again at the University of Chicago. That young Dodie Upton uh, cardiologist then 
tells me, he says, I'm going to put it into the mystery. There's one task that can tell us what's going on with your heart. It's the angiogram. So at the same time I get, I'm getting the angiogram, they're running the genetic test for me. In the angiogram, he tells me and my husband, oh, she's fine. She's passed all these tasks. There's nothing we're going to find, but we just need to do this to just make sure that, you know, we've got it all right across the teeth. In the middle of my heart capitalization, they get serious and glum and the facial expressions change. And I look up and I was like, what's going on? And they said, we need to stop. You need to be aware of something. I said, what do I need to be aware of? This is this year, February 2023. It says you have 98% blocked. This is after almost a year of being denied care and being told that there's nothing wrong with me and of the hospital doctors actually stopping me from getting second opinions from Mayo Clinic from Northwest. And I have a letter from Mayo Clinic saying that my doctors told me that I didn't need a second opinion, which nobody can even believe that's happened. So now I have a 98% blocked heart artery. Same time, the genetic tests come back, and here we go. Not only do I have lipoprotein little A, but I have familial hypercholesterolemia, and what nobody was expecting to find was a CPT2. The lipoprotein little A wasn't causing the muscle pain. It wasn't causing me to have a loss of my ability to walk after the faction. It is the CPT2. But here's the deal with the CPT2. When they did that test, my variant of CPT2 in the genetic test result says it produces statin myopathy. I was on statin. My lipid cardiologist, who is world-renowned, suddenly called, gets on to a Zoom call with me, and instead of calling me Sylvia, because I only use Sylvia, he says to me, Dr. Washington, and I said, whoa. He says, I know who you are. Let's do the epidemiology of this disease. He explained everything. He says, you can't take high levels of statins. He says, you have CPT2. But I, after this call, will no longer be treating you. So then I asked him, as an epidemiology professor, I said, okay, doctor, you asked me to do a genetic test. I agreed, and I agreed under the condition that I would get counseling after I got my results. He told me in writing, I'm not going to give you a genetic counseling, and I'm going to refer you back to a junior cardiologist. After that test, thank God for Stephanie Hart, Harry of Mono Action, because like you, I started looking for ways to help me with this when they denied me. He says, find your own. He literally told me to find my own genetic counselor. So here I am trying to get through a stint, which I wasn't expecting to have, getting genetic test results and being told that I was on my own. And what makes it even more insidious is that they saw those test results and allowed me to go through cardiac rehab, which is almost an hour a day for three days a week for 45 minutes of activity. And I have CPT2 deficiency. And as an epidemiologist coming out of cardiac rehab, I finally said, let me look at these results. Why is this, why am I suddenly a pariah? Well, because I wasn't supposed to be on the statins and I wasn't supposed to be taking more than 15 minutes of exercise at a time. And they let me do that for three months. I'm we're here by the grace of God, because everything is in stack against me. I'm not being treated now. And like I said before, without Stephanie 
Harry, I wouldn't be going to Children's Lurie Hospital, but I decided to take the foundation 501c3 that I already have and to put an end to this because I'm not the only one that they're doing this to. So now I've created a foundation with my, I've repurposed my 501c3 to the One Drop Rule uh, Genetic Health Foundation. So my goal now is to make sure that everyone who is a multiracial person get this information and get tested. And so I'm starting with my DNA cousins, and that's over 20,000 people that I've amassed over the last 15 years. And they will know about FAOD, and they will be directed to Mito Action to go and get the information they need to be tested so that they and their children and their grandchildren will be visible. Because right now, we are invisible. And that's my story. Um, my name is Haley Coble. Um, I am a public librarian. I was diagnosed with an MCAD disorder when I was, mm, I'm not sure exactly how old I was. I first crashed at 13 months and I was in a hypoglycemic coma for a week. And this was back in, I was born in 87. And so I was, I know I was diagnosed like 89, I think. Um, so I, I, First started having problems and I started eating actual food instead of just formula. I, I read my my mom made a, a book of like her experiences, you know, while I was sick and in the hospital because she said that she just had to write it down to get it out of her head because it was all she could think about. Reading through that was really, really interesting. Um, of course, it was the late 80s, so <laughs> people didn't know what it was. And I, as I was reading through that, I thought, wow, how fortunate that some of the things that my doctor did were like, oh, okay, well, let's do a dextrose strip. And, well, they could get my metabolic, so feed her every six hours. <laughs> it seemed like they were just kind of you know, throwing things at the wall to see what's stuck. And and then um, I ended up at Texas Children's Hospital. There was a doctor who had been working on uh, uh, patients with MCAT there um, and recognized what it was and was able to get me on carnitine because I'm also carnitine deficient. And after that, we were able to manage it fairly well. I had a really, really strict diet growing up. And I think it's interesting now, it seems like with MCAT, there's less diet restriction. They're like, oh, we don't necessarily need to eat a low fat diet. Um, I still do because that's what I've done my whole life. And I don't want to make myself sick for no reason by eating things I'm not used to. But when I was growing up, I was always very aware of it. Um, and I think it is very isolating especially through school and stuff. And uh, like on the one hand, I had to go to the office, the nurse's office to take carnitine every day in the middle of the day. Um, on the other hand, all of my classmates knew I needed to go to the office and take carnitine in the middle of the day. So they would be like, Haley, go take your medicine if I forgot. <laughs> so it, you know, it was nice in that regard, but also, like I said, a little bit isolating. I didn't know anyone else who had it. And, and in fact, I think... Um, what I was reading was like in the late 80s, 20% of SIDS babies, they attributed to MCAT 
And I also learned that my mom wrote a bunch of letters to White Sits Foundation and different magazines and stuff, trying to raise awareness about it, which was great because you know, she's just like a one woman warrior out there trying to make everybody aware that this is a thing. I was always, like I said, I was always really aware of it as a kid. I would always like, you know, if if there was, you know, we had a pizza party at school or something, I'd have like one slice, only half cheese because I didn't know how much fat was in the pepperoni and stuff. And like, I would always check the nutrition labels on like everything. She was very aware of it growing up. Um, I was only supposed to have about 35 grams of fat a day as a kid. And I still try to stick to that. Um, I do uh, do a lot of complex carbs, a lot of popcorn. Popcorn's like my favorite thing, <laughs> and I eat a ton of that. Um, and I finally got my own popcorn, crank popcorn maker, so I can make fancy popcorn and season it with stuff that I can without worrying about. And yeah, it's, it's just been real interesting. I was telling somebody the other day, I remember when Ben and Jerry's came out with a, a frozen yogurt half-baked and I was like frozen yogurt with cookie dough I was so excited and now I have a hard time finding it but anytime I do it's like payday <laughs> because I get to go not worry about how much I can eat of it as an adult I really haven't had any issues with it I've been very very fortunate I had a friend the other day ask me um, because basically I have to get a flu shot every year so that I don't get the flu because if I am ever in danger of not being able to keep food down um, while we're fasting, I'm, I have to be hospitalized. And I had a friend ask me, like, do you not get stomach flu and like end up throwing up a lot? Because she's like, I get that all the time. And I was like, I never get that. And I, <laughs> I just must be extraordinarily lucky because I would definitely be in the hospital if I did. Um, but I think think oh my gosh I think my last hospitalization was when I was five and I think that was for a seizure which was a completely different thing I haven't really had many problems with NCAT since I was uh, very little and I just I take uh, 20 cc's of carnitine twice a day and I see a doctor specialist once a year um, another weird awkward thing about being diagnosed really early and the people have knowledge of MCAD is that there's not very many adult specialists so I still see a pediatric geneticist even though I'm 36 <laughs> and when they do my blood draws I get fun spongebob band-aids and stuff like that so I just I just look at it that way <laughs> fortunately I tend to just only have to do the blood draws once a year um, usually to check my carnitine levels. When I was little, carnitine wasn't approved yet by the FDA. And so I, my mom had to send blood and urine samples every six months in exchange for carnitine. <laughs> so fortunately, I don't have to worry about that anymore, but I am still very, very, I hate needles. I hate hospitals. I would love to do some of the clinical trials that help out at night. <laughs> I don't know if I can do it. So I'm going to have to see if I can even qualify before before I do that because I just, it's like nightmare fuel <laughs> for me. Overall, I feel like the feelings I have about my story are mostly that it has been very isolating. 
a little weird because, you know, I'm 36, I'm very healthy, I don't really have any serious health problems, other than maybe have hypothyroidism, other than that, I'm pretty healthy, um, but I have no idea what the future looks like <laughs> for someone with MCAD, and I don't think anyone else does either, <laughs> and so that's a little bit nerve-wracking, like when I get older, am I going to have more problems? Um, I know there was discussion that if I ever had children that I might have to be on bed rest for part of pregnancy because of the energy deficit and because of uh, sharing food with the baby. Um, but I, I don't have kids. I don't plan to have kids. Um, and I'd say that my having a genetic disorder has entered into that in a way. Um, there are other reasons that I have decided not to, but that's probably the least of it, <laughs> because at least if I did have a child who had MCAT, I would know what to do. <laughs> I know exactly who to call and probably give them a dose of my carotene. <laughs> so, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's just, it, I, I have to say, um, I was really lucky in the fall that the nutritionist at my um, clinic was able to contact me and let me know about the NCAD summit that was happening online and I went to that and I met Stephanie through that and I also um, have met a couple of young mothers with kids with NCAD through that and talked with them and tried to kind of help put them at ease and be like look once they got me on my treatment and I have had very 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 few issues with it at all and um, so it's been really, really cool to get to know some other people with at least with fatty acid oxidation disorders. Um, I still don't know really people with them cat, but it's it's been really interesting and nice that there are other people out there because I, like I said, I felt so isolated my whole life with it. Hi, I'm Tasia Richiski, and I'm a 31 year old VL cat patient uh, from Boston, Massachusetts. Um, so I'm here today to talk to you a little bit about my story. I was diagnosed pre-newborn screening. Um, I was actually diagnosed after falling into a metabolic crisis at six months old. Um, and that's when it was discovered that I had BLCAD. So after that initial trauma, which I'm sure if you talk to my parents, uh, they, they would tell you it was not a fun time, um, learning that, you know, you have a kid with a rare disease that there's not a lot of information out there about taking it day by day to learn how to do things like insert G-tubes and making sure proper feedings and things like that. So my first two years of life was really tough. Um, again, I don't remember them, but I'm sure my parents remember them very vividly. But honestly, after that point, um, my health really restabilized. So when I look back on my childhood, I honestly, yes, I see modifications that were taken um, to help me stay healthy. Uh, you know, things like I was the kid who was always carrying snacks and Gatorade. And, you know, I had to be a little more conscious of my activity level than like maybe the people around me. But for the most part, I grew up doing what every other kid did. I went to sleepovers, I went to public school, I played sports and did activities. Um, and my parents were really adamant that they wanted me to be able to do those things. So I really kind of like embodied that and grew into that. And I think through my childhood growing up in a small town in uh, rural New Hampshire, 
you know, athletics and sports were just a big part of the community. It was an expectation that like everybody, that's just kind of something people participated in. Um, and I actually really enjoyed you know, like sports and athletic activities. So um, I kind of fell into that with like all my peers. Um, and I started to really like build an identity that was around that concept of like being active, playing sports. And then when I was an adolescent, so I hit, when I hit puberty around age 11, um, my health started to change. You know, I had been on a medication my whole life. I had worked really well, had allowed me to keep up with my peers, to do all of those things. And all of a sudden it seemed like in puberty that that wasn't working anymore, the medication. You know, I slowly but surely became less able to keep up with my peers. Um, I started to be hospitalized. Um, I distinctly remember being in like fifth grade. Um, I grew up in a skiing family and like we came home after a long day of skiing and I had like a leg pain that like I've never experienced in my life before. And um, that was kind of like my first, I guess like introduction into this string of uh, hospitalizations that would incur due to rhabdomyolysis. And um, yeah, it was a really tough time because, you know, being an adolescent, especially, I feel like that's the one time in your life that you just want to be like everybody else. Like you just want to be doing the things that your friends are doing. Um, and it was the exact time when I kind of transitioned from not being like not being able to do those things. And, you know, my medication wasn't working. I was hospitalized a lot. I was missing out on these like key, like teenage milestones, right? Like I was missing out on things that seemed trivial now looking back, but to a teenager are important school dances and, you know, like tr school trips. And like, I was just missing large swaths of time from even just being in school and being social with other teenagers. And then feeling like I was falling behind in my schoolwork and it, it just became really overwhelming to just be living this almost totally different life than I'd experienced in childhood. Um, and so during that time, like, I definitely think that the social isolation and just like depression kind of started creeping in. And honestly, it was the first time in my life that I'd ever was angry that I had a rare disease and I had an FAOD. I'd never experienced that kind of like anger toward it. Um, and so, uh, and I didn't know what to do with it, right? Because it was like, it was new. It was almost like, it was almost like I was being diagnosed right then, right? Because it was just so vastly different from what I've been living before. And my quality of life was just not the same at all. Um, so I had to do a lot of wrestling and like understanding what what can I what can I change? Um, but as a teenager, I didn't have the mental capacity to do that. So I was just angry. And I feel like people sometimes say that like, you know, you have to learn to like let the anger go, which I I, I agree with that, that you have to you have to let it go to some extent, but I think, I don't know if I ever completely let the anger go. Like, I think there's a part of me that's still angry, but it's different. It's a productive type of anger. I've taken what um, I've been through and I, you know, I still see things and now I see things just, I think in general in the healthcare system or things with rare disease policy where I'm like, that, that shouldn't be that way. And like, I think the anger now, instead of pulling me away from things, 
actually pushes me toward them and compels me to want to make a change and to reach out to people and to make things better. And, you know, am I ever probably going to live without a rare disease, without having that baby? Probably not. Uh, but I've learned to use it to, um, and use my voice to kind of push us toward a better place collectively as a community. Um, so I think I, in those adolescent years, and it took a really long time because I feel like I needed to go through my phase of like, just learning how to cope on my own, like cope with my own illness. But once I got through that, I was able to learn how to use those coping skills that I learned for myself and kind of relay them to other people and maybe like relay them to people who don't understand what it's like to live uh, with a rare disease or, you know, the things that we go through on a day-to-day basis and just want to raise kind of the greater awareness for the community. So I like to think that I don't know if I'll ever completely get rid of the anger, but I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. I think it's what compels me to continue to want to push toward um, more resources and just a better quality of life for people in that AOP community. And I think having a sense of community is that's so important. Um, you know, it's something I, I never never had growing up and it, it didn't kind of surface itself until I was older. But I started, you know, reaching out and I started things like uh, doing things like going to medical schools and talking to medical students about, you know, living with a rare disease and just like seeing them and seeing how interested they were and how my story really impacted them. That led me to want to continue to do that type of work um, because I I could see how it was benefiting the community. Um, I was very lucky to at the age of uh, 14. um, And again, this is something that I, I think I'm a little bit of an outlier. I'm starting to realize now my um, specialist suggested a clinical trial and it was like a very um, early clinical trial. Like I was one of the first patients and, you know, it was suggested to me by him. And this is somebody who, you know, I had seen for like, uh, like 12 years, right? Like someone I trusted um, and just learning more and more about clinical trials now and like how that like this isn't really how people find out about clinical trials. They have to go and kind of seek them out themselves. And I just I, I honestly can't imagine how overwhelming that is. And like, honestly, had I not been presented with the opportunity by my specialist, I don't think I ever would have found it. And my life would have looked very, very differently. So it's like another thing I work to try to understand more like how how can we change that how can we make clinical trials more of part of the just like discussion and you know bring more people to being able to access them so I was able to start that clinical trial and it really did change change my life um I think it changed my health trajectory to the point where you know I never quite went back to that like what I like to call like the carefree childhood days where I could have essentially forget I had um, an FAOD and not really think about it. That is definitely not the case. Even today, a lot of my life is built around managing, but it was manageable. And like, that was the difference is like during adolescence, it got to the point where I felt like it was completely out of my control. It was completely unmanageable. And there was no point of trying to like even do anything or have like goals or dreams or aspirations. Cause I was like, well, what's the point? Like, I'm not going to be able to do any of them. 
So I feel like the clinical trial and the ability for that medication to work just opened up a little bit of light for me to like be able to like, you know what, like I, I can do this. I can manage this FAOD and not let it manage me. And it took a lot of uh, trial and error, figuring out what works, what doesn't work. And I'm still doing it to this day, right? Like 10 or whatever more years later, but that's what it's all about. And it's just learning to get closer and closer to being healthy, both like mentally and physically, I think, and being okay with the fact that, yeah, okay, I have an FAOD, but it, it doesn't need to define me and it doesn't need to control me. Like I, it, it's actually the other way around. I think that's something that I've learned and I am glad some, I'm like, like even glad sometimes now that I have an FAOD and a rare disease because I think it's led me to talk to people and experience things that I wouldn't have otherwise and, and kind of almost forced me to use my voice for, for, for good. Hey, I'm Alex, I'm 20, and I have LCHAP, and I was diagnosed at Wonderful. Growing up, you know, I had a pretty normal childhood. I just managed my energy limitations and uh, went to the hospital every now and then for the common illness. But after a couple of days, I was rocking and rolling again and back to my spunky childhood self. As I reached adolescence, I ended up having a lot of energy deficits and weakness that caused a metabolic decline. And that was where I also came to terms a lot with the types of trials I was going through with LCHAD and the little bit harder parts of LCHAD that you know may not be written in the textbook um, that I was suddenly experiencing. Um, once I was able to turn my decline around roots and bridging, I really began to have this rehabilitation journey that really put me into the forefront of the community as well. And um, just, I want to be a person that people can look at and see that um, not to ever give up and to um, just keep going one step at a time, one day at a time. Um, In those hardest um, seasons that I was in, I couldn't walk, I couldn't do anything for myself. I mean, 24-7 caregiving. But I think um, living day-to-day, you know, you have the teary moments and um, the hard times. But, um, you know, just sometimes I laugh and cry at the same time uh, because, um, you know, I just want to keep a smile on my face. And, you know, I'm here today on this earth for another day for a reason. So um, after I gained a lot um physical strength back um, through some of my rehabbing. Um, I'm now a thriving college student. I'm independent, living on my own um, when I am at college. Um, one thing I've learned at college is that independence doesn't mean not asking for help. And so I have a little bit of caregiving, but um, that's facilitated by friends and um, caregivers that are not my parents. You know, hopefully you know, my story can be encouraging and something that people can see hope through. Um, because there are the hard seasons, and um, I started experiencing rhabdomyolysis for the first time in adulthood. And so there's definitely different seasons that come with LCHAD that 
you might figure it out, you know, then the season changes and now you have a new, a new challenge. And uh, I just encourage people to, you know, celebrate every day, every victory, every celebration, you know, live in that moment, see which, you know, see how far you came. <laughs> you know, both the caregivers and the patient are, are warriors. And so everybody has their own story and I encourage people who are coming of age, you know, to find their own and come into their own and own their disease because, you know, you can't change that all is a part of me, um, but I can, I can decide what I do with it, you know, and, and how I let it affect me. And uh, I can't change the limitations and the physical things that, you know, I'm still working hard to um, continue to gain strength and everything. I think my attitude is just stay positive and to go one, one day at a time, one step at a time is our motto because I think sometimes the future gets kind of scary and um, I just encourage people to stay in the now and you know, see how far you have come because you are living today. And you made it through all of the other hard things and you can get through hard things in the future. I want to sincerely thank each of the individuals who stopped by for taking their time to do this. Every one of these wonderful people showed incredible vulnerability and strength in sharing their stories with me and in turn now with all of you. It can be taxing to dive into the past, to relive some of the moments that have impacted us so deeply. And I know for me, it can really be emotional. So, especially in times like these, I lean into this quote from Miss Brené Brown. She says, Owning our story and loving ourselves through that process is the bravest thing we'll ever do. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Parents is Rare, a series of the Energy in Action podcast. Please be sure to leave a review and a rating for this episode wherever you listen and subscribe and listen to the Energy in Action podcast, where we talk all things Mito. Until next time, remember to show up, be vulnerable, supportive, and kind, and give yourself permission to feel along the way.